welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Edgensen. I'm Finar Edgensen. And we're the hosts for the Book Talk. We're excited today to welcome Robert Giel, who is lecturer in Film and Television Studies at the University of Wolverhampton in the UK. And he'll be discussing his book, Ecological Film Theory and Psychoanalysis, Surviving the Environmental Apocalypse, in cinema, which came out this year, 2021, with Routledge. So Robert, we'll give it over to you. Thank you. Um, and, and I'd like to say um, thanks for the opportunity to, um, to speak to you today. Um, you, you know, there are some wonderful books in the series, so it's really flattering to be in such, um, such brilliant company. Um, I, I've been thinking about the, the best way to introduce what my book covers to an audience that may include some uh, non-film specialists, because my work builds on some very specific components of psychoanalytic film theory, um, which um, is often thought of as being um, obscure and sometimes indeed accused of being obscurantist, like deliberately um, um, confusing um, and convoluted. Uh, and so I, I think a brief explanation of, of how the idea for the book developed is a good place to begin. So my first book that, that, my, uh, that was based on my PhD was not about ecological issues at all, uh, but it engaged with, with this same tradition in film studies, uh, this psychoanalytic approach to film that examines how the, um, the, the cinematic apparatus unconsciously fixes the spectator in place. The idea is um, that the dominant model of mainstream film uh, in some way washes over the spectator who is passively positioned in its most extreme version as, as, a, as a dupe of the filmmaker's ideological values. Um, perhaps the most famous example of this kind of approach is Laura Mulvey's notion of what she calls a, a male gaze, uh, in which film visually and narratively represents women in such a way that the spectator unconsciously adopts a male objectifying misogynistic position over which they don't have full rational control. So for this broad psychoanalytic approach to film, then the filmmaker and the spectator are thought of as being impelled by unconscious motives, which they are not fully aware of. And for me, at least, this is this is a clear, if a counterintuitive claim. But what has always been less clear about this approach is the precise way that film positions the spectator as a passive subject. So when I engage with this model for my first book, I want to be as precise as possible about this effect. And this is what eventually eventually led me to a, a, an ecological way of thinking about film. In trying to clarify how psychoanalysis differs from rationalistic philosophy, I came across the work of Paul Ricoeur, who explored how the psychoanalytic notion that we don't have control over our consciousness is a rejection of the much more intuitive idea that we do control our consciousness, and which is exemplified by René Descartes. Many of you, of course, will be familiar with the influence of Descartes because of the way that his dualistic philosophy fundamentally divides reality into these two distinct categories, the exclusively human res cogitans, thinking thing, and the passive external res extensa, which is everything else in the world, including animals, forests, rivers, etc., all of which are there for humanity to control and subjugate. So, Using Recur, I realized that I could explain cinema, cinema's ideological effect as a fundamentally Cartesian illusion. Cinema encourages the spectator to experience him or herself as an omnipotent res cogitans who seems to create and master 
the res extensor imagery in this case, the imagery of the film as the res extensor. Every moment of film is in fact designed to control and manipulate our perception, granting or deferring knowledge of how characters relate to one another. But such moments instead suggest that we have a mastery over the events taking place. Via <clears throat> editing and camera motion, the spectator can move around the fictional space in a manner that seems to grant control over what is happening. A character is secretly concealing an important prop or a character is creeping up behind another unsuspecting character and so on. We seem to be masters over a res extensor world, which is there merely for our pleasure and utility. This is an illusion, however. The filmmakers arrange all of this for us. And though we seem to be active agents, we are instead passive. So my first book explored some of these ideological um, issues, but it didn't yet address ecology. But even while writing my first book, I began to think that cinema's fundamentally Cartesian illusion the sensation that everything outside of us is there just for our convenience could also be connected with our culture's attitudes to the environment. In fact, for a moment, I thought I'd perhaps even been the first to recognize that Cartesian dualism is the underlying cause of our ecophobic attitudes to the environment because I wasn't at that point a, 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 an eco-critic. Uh, of course, I very quickly discovered that people like Lynn White Jr. and Lorraine Code and, and lots of others had already developed this argument. But what informs my ecological film theory is the connection between these two existing scholarly arguments about the negative effects of Cartesian dualism. Number one, the psychoanalytic film studies claim that the cinema arranges an illusion of the external world, which is there for our pleasure. So film is inherently uh, something that encourages Cartesian subjectivity. And number two, the eco-critical claim that Cartesian subjectivity legitimates the despoilation of the non-human world because it is conceptualized as fundamentally separate from us. So my new book is about how film unconsciously reinforces this Cartesian illusion, providing an, an, an aesthetics that legitimates our ecophobic alienation from that which is not us. So I set out these uh, philosophical premises over the first two chapters of the book. I then apply these ideas to films which engage with ecological issues at the narrative level. So that's the, the bulk of the book. The most extreme examples of this are environmental disaster films and environmental apocalypse films. This is because even if I've claimed that mainstream film is fundamentally anthropocentric and fundamentally ecophobic, here we have films which ostensibly warn us about the impending disasters that will be brought about by our attitudes towards the environment. I'm talking here about films like The Day After Tomorrow, Geostorm, San Andreas, The Perfect Storm, Waterworld, the Mad Max series, films that hopefully people will be familiar with, with some of these examples. These are films that depict the dangers and horrors of what awaits us in the real world. Perhaps such films then might have a positive effect. They could encourage us to change our attitudes and behaviors before it's too late. Unfortunately, however, my argument is that these films are still inherently ecophobic. Any potentially positive effects are hugely outweighed by a number of ideological factors. And the most significant of these is the fact that the films all align the spectator with those who survive the disaster or, or, or the apocalypse rather than with the, uh, the masses who are killed in the disaster. Those who survive indeed do so because they are provided a perceptual mastery over the impending threat. They see that which the unremarkable victims 
do not see coming and the films fetishize this this perception the spectator is also granted this ostensible perceptual mastery sharing glimpses of computer simulations data readouts and so on with those characters who will heroically escape the disaster in addition during the bombastic spectacles of destruction when protagonists narrowly escape one disaster after another the spectator is allowed to pirouette and glide around the devastation pleasurably transcending the destruction the, the ideological effect of this is clear for me when the real world disaster comes you the spectator will survive like the fictional protagonist rather than rather than being engulfed like the hordes of ant-like victims who are sacrificed for your pleasure indeed not only do the do the protagonists survive but in so doing they emerge renewed for example in almost all of these films there are disrupted heteronormative families at the beginning of the films and the experiences of overcoming the disaster bring those families back together you too the films unconsciously suggest can reforge your fractured relationships when the ecological apocalypse comes perhaps even more ideologically the films frequently align this social renewal with ecological renewal with a violent earth restored to a benevolent guile-like state by the end of the films so the films suggest the impending disaster is not only something that you the spectator will survive but is also something that will improve your relationships with one another and with the world around you my claim then is that all mainstream hollywood filmmaking is ecophobic and even films with narratives about the dangers of treating the earth with contempt participate in this ecophobia reinforcing the spectator's alienation from the res extensa world around us the book does consider however whether there are alternative forms of filmmaking which might not have this ecophobic effect and i mainly focus on two particular alternative forms non-narrative avant-garde films which are sometimes called eco films in the scholarly literature and that's the first example and a, and a certain tradition in japanese filmmaking which is exemplified in anime and particularly in miyazaki hiyo's films like spirited away and nausicaa of the valley of the wind and so on so in terms of this first category eco films um existing scholarship <clears throat> excuse me has already identified how films like um uh, Werner herzog's grizzly man or uh, gideon Koppel's sleep furiously encourage a slow distanced and therefore more zoomorphic position for the spectator and i agree that this alternative style avoids the cartesian effect i uh, identify in hollywood filmmaking so this kind of avant-garde may be very useful in our urgent need to develop new non-cartesian aesthetics and non-cartesian subjectivities however there is also a limitation with this kind of filmmaking because such films are only seen by very small audiences the ecological apocalypse blockbuster rather than the avant-garde eco film continues to be the emblematic record of a culture on the brink of the real world disaster i think that's the artifact we'll leave behind us if anyone's there to um to, to see it after the disaster um the second potentially non-cartesian category japanese anime uh, reaches much larger larger audiences than avant-garde uh, eco films um many of these films have ecologically aware narratives of various kinds but i'm even more interested in them because of the specific formal component um, which is derived from a particular element of japanese aesthetics and this is what uh, takashi murakami refers to as something that he calls super flat 
And this is the potential for anime to flatten out the um, three dimensionality, which is such an inherently Cartesian component of Western aesthetics going back to the Renaissance. Um, in the Renaissance painting and in Hollywood filmmaking, the, the illusion of the three dimensional space creates the impression of a res extensa, which is ordered for the gaze of the res cogitans observer. Yeah? The, 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 the illusion of three dimensionality positions us in such a way that grants us a kind of a mastery over it. Flat two dimensional art does not conform to this Cartesian principle. And so its use in Japanese anime potentially avoids the Cartesian illusion of offering up an alienated res extensor for the spectator to ostensibly master. Um, and in the book, I analyze some examples of these tensions in Miyazaki's filmmaking. Um, and I conclude that his work is less Cartesian than the Western disaster films I discussed earlier, but still contains a lingering three dimensionality um, and therefore a lingering Cartesian component. Uh, and finally, just to talk about the conclusion of the book, I wrote the, uh, the conclusion during the first lockdown in response to the COVID-19 pandemic and while Black Lives Matter's protests were taking place. Um, and I expressed the hope that these events might help us to change our fundamentally ecophobic culture, the notion of uh, change occurring at moments of crisis, potentially. And people will remember, it seems like a long time ago in many ways, but there was lots of talk of we can't go back to the new normal. Um, perhaps some of that optimism in such a bleak moment is already beginning to fade. But the book is also, as I've been discussing, about how blinded human cultures can be when they face disaster. So I, I certainly wasn't predicting radical transformations. And I discussed the fact that lockdown culture turned to streaming fictional pandemics like Steven Soderbergh's Contagion. I don't know whether anybody else watched these kind of films at the time. Um, but I think this demonstrates the extent to which during the pandemic, we were drawn towards the illusion of Cartesian mastery that we were granted in film. So in the real world, we can't see who is infected or where the virus comes from. But if we watch a film like Contagion, we have an illusory mastery over these traumatically unknowable um, factors. Anybody who's watched it recently will know how much it lingers over images of people coughing and touching surfaces that, that allow us to, to have this sense of, uh, of mastering. So I finish the book on the issue of, of, uh, of attempting to transform our, eco uh, our ecophobic culture because we will require, I believe, a, a non-Cartesian aesthetics if we are to avoid the disasters that are predicted by films like The Day After Tomorrow. Uh, and my book provides a few examples of how we can develop such a non-Cartesian aesthetics, but it is principally, unfortunately, a catalogue of how our culture is continuing to unconsciously plunge headlong into disaster. Thanks, Robert. Uh, this was great. Um, I would just remind everyone in the audience, if you have questions and comments, just uh, let us know in the chat and I will call on you. Uh, but I thought just to, to begin with, I mean, I'm not a film studies scholar. I, I work in um, environmental history mostly. Uh, and also history technology. But I'm wondering, you know, there's a, in a way, a media question here. What about this is unique to film? Or, you know, do you see similar things with representations of, in this case, like disaster, um, apocalypse in other media, in literature, uh, in, in even in, in photography? 
Uh, do you see what's unique then with with film? Uh, thank you. That's that's a really good question. So, I mean, yes, I, I think that um, all aspects of our culture participate in 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 um, the various different points that I'm interested in, and. Um, you focus particularly on the, the, the ecological disaster component there. Um, but I'd like to emphasize as well the way in which, because my, my argument is a film theory, it's about the more fundamental nuts and bolts, formal grammatical structure underlying underlying that. But I think both example, both, both formal grammatical components and the specific um, representations of, uh, of ecological disaster are, are both related to culture more broadly, the various other examples that you mentioned. You, you asked what's unique about cinema. I don't think cinema is unique in terms of any of those things. I think it's perhaps the most exaggerated exemplar um, of these various um, phenomena. So I, I mentioned just in terms of um, the formal components, I briefly mentioned in my introduction then, and, and I rely on this to quite a large extent in the book, the way in which Renaissance painting, for example, is a, a, a key component of the of the psycho, uh, psychoanalytic um, uh, approach to film. Um, that for me would be a really um, kind of key example of how something really fundamentally structuring and underlying our entire culture is um, is Cartesian specifically and uh, encourages us to have a subjectivity that is alienated from the external world around us. So just briefly to kind of mention the notion again, the, the idea is that in the, in the European Renaissance, a, a new um, form of subjectivity, modern subjectivity was, uh, was emerging. Individualism, um, the notion of, um, of humanism, of, 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 of man being the pinnacle of creation, etc. Um, and this idea is, is discussed by philosophers, and I think Descartes is perhaps the, the most extreme um, or, or the most clear example of somebody sitting down and writing this down absolutely clearly. But there's also an aesthetics which emerges at the same time. And the, the, the three point perspective of Renaissance painting is um, an aesthetics which reinforces this notion that's philosophically emerging at the time and i think it's really really important as well it, de it demonstrates a key a key thing about the, the function that aesthetics have in the sense that it's uh, the experience that somebody has when they are looking at a painting seems to come from within them doesn't it yeah i seem to experience something personal but from a psychoanalytic um, perspective I i'm being manipulated i'm being my unconscious is being um, uh, structured in a certain way um, even though it seems to be something that sensibly comes from within. Um, and, and the cinema utilises this same notion of the world seeming to um, unfold before me for my, for my pleasure and my utility. Every, every, every cut in cinema is there to, um, to, to grant me a new um, image, of, a new sense of mastery over what is happening within the um, images. And so that's an example then if you like of how the formal level i think the the notion of um our subjectivity of the aesthetic just being a reflection of the subjectivity i mean in terms of the disasters as well 
yes, I think this is uh, the cinema is is perhaps the 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 film the the, the artistic form that can most um, explicitly capture the, the the key components of this. Particularly given that these, I mean, I don't know how many of the if you've seen any of these films, and the same with our audience, but the principal pleasures of these these films is in the moments of destruction is in the disaster unfolding and the sense of partly there's a pathos for the people who are being killed but of course the the, the characters that i've been encouraged to identify with are surviving and are escaping and are narrowly uh, flying or diving out of the way of waves and volcanoes and whatever it might be um so i I think that um, other art forms can convey some of those notions about the sense of um, impending apocalypse. But I think that the spectacle component of that is a really inherently cinematic um, component. But the follow up on that, um, you know, I was thinking about the ways in which the the cinematic control then seeing, um, you know, having this sense of, of the being in control of everything outside of you is about you identifying with the character who survives right um as you're saying in these narratives and it occurred to me that you have um the japanese anime film um the very early um grave of the fireflies mm -hmm. and i don't know if you've seen grave of the fireflies but but what it does so powerfully is to be this you know disaster film um in which everybody dies right and i hate to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it but <laughs> there, there it was um and it does it it is exactly what you're saying it creates a very different um aesthetics of of control or lack thereof um so i'm wondering if that isn't um maybe a major difference or thing that this kind of disaster um film and environmental apocalypse maybe needs to tell the story of the ones who don't survive right yeah. that, that that actually needs to be the same cinema uh you know that the that the association becomes about with them hmm. and how that would change our understanding yes absolutely i mean the difficulty for a filmmaker is how to make that work within the logic of um, traditional, you know, filmmaking um, practices. But you're absolutely right that 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 would be a very different um, filmmaking experience. And there are some films that um, that point towards um, some kind of Western disaster films, if you like, that point towards this this notion of um, the a number of characters don't survive now when that happens there are there are there, there are ways in which the film can can still ideologically mitigate that so quite frequently amongst the protagonists there are some characters who die um but they do so in a kind of a noble self-sacrificing um manner and um the i've mentioned that i've got a psycho psychoanalytic methodology in the film um I, I, I particularly, sorry, in, in my book, <laughs> uh, and I particularly um, utilize um, Lacanian ideas, and I, and I discuss the way in which the the sacrifice of characters happens within the context of what Lacan calls the the symbolic order. This notion of there being something um, larger and more powerful than than individuals that structures and informs 
our subjectivity. So that when characters within the Western um, uh, disaster film tradition uh, die, who are protagonists, they're frequently um, depicted as sacrificing themselves in order to support and uphold the symbolic order. Uh, sometimes uh, characters are, are, are punished in order to, to uphold the symbolic order as well. I mean, I, men I mentioned heteronormative families. So often there is a figure who threatens the heteronormative family. So 2012 is, I think, the film that I, I um, discussed this in, in most detail with, which some of you may know. Um, at the beginning, there's a, a, um, a disrupted um, family and the, the mother of the two children has got a, a boyfriend and he will need to be killed in order for the family to be restored. Um, and any he, he can even um, kind of go down nobly if you like, but um, but but um, he still needs to be removed in order for that symbolic um, unit to be put back together. So frequently, when there are deaths of characters amongst the protagonists, there's still a kind of an ideological um, component to that, which is reinforcing the same the, the other ideological values. Um, you're absolutely right to say that if you had a film in which the um the focus isn't on survival at all then that would be a really key way to break and challenge the the ideology the principal ideology of the film um, i mean i didn't mention this in the talk but i, I make much in in my book of um uh, frederick jameson's notion of the the political unconscious um which again i'm sure people will be familiar with um, is the notion that um various kind of contradictions and um, uh, problems within a, a society are so traumatic so so huge and so traumatic that they can't be dealt with at the, the conscious level that they get repressed down into what he calls the political unconscious and that we then have fictional examples that resolve them and i essentially think of these films as being like that we have all this anxiety and trauma about the impending I mean, the disasters, of course, are already happening, but the, the, the notion that, that it will become, you know, kind of global catastrophic um, event. We, so we have trauma about that. And these films express this trauma. But of course, they go on to resolve and cathartically um, um, push the trauma back down because resolution happens. Uh, so, so in terms of your point about, you know, a, a focus on those who don't survive or indeed there being no survivors, um, would resolve that um uh, or would prevent the the repression of, of, of back down into the uh, political unconscious all right so we have a question from Mehdi. so thank you very much robert i'm definitely going to read your book because i'm very much interested in experimental filmmaking as ecology and um, specifically using, for, for instance, smartphones that is at the disposal of most people. Um, my question is about, uh, because I really, I really liked your arguments, um, specifically about um, the three dimensionality and all that. But I have a thought about uh, whether you think um, the whole alienation that is, seems to be inherent to cinema is somewhat rooted in our alienation to, to the technology that enables this cinematic experience. And that is both as an audience, for instance, in the cinema or for a, for a person operating a camera. Um, 
just just to elaborate, uh, I'm talking about this experience where the technology becomes invisible through the cinematic experience. When we are in the cinema, we're on in the snow place. We're suddenly not in the city. We're somewhere else. And this already erases the immediate e ecology or ecosystem around us that has enabled that experience. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering if you think uh, that is a big part of why, why we kind of perform this mastery through film because we already, for instance, mastered the technology that enables it. And uh, do you find potential in experimentations that tries to draw in the context uh, where the film is being produced or watched into the whole experience? I don't know how that is possible, but as a thought experiment, I wanted to hear if you find poten potential in that. Yeah, that's that, thank you for that. That's really interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, first off, in, the, in the, you know the, the the point about mainstream Hollywood or realist filmmaking, as it's it's normally called. I mean, I, I absolutely agree that this notion of um, I mean, use the term invisible. You know, the the, the apparatus being invisible. This is a, a kind of a really key notion, isn't it, for um, for the psychoanalytic um, uh, film studies approach, the idea that um, film in some way passes itself off as a reality, even though it's constructed. Um, it, it grants to the spectator the notion that they are escaping to wherever it might be, that they're, they're watching where, when, when they're really um, um, uh, grounded in a specific location. It, it effaces all of those um, social contexts. So you're absolutely right about, or, or, or I, I absolutely agree, um, about that context. And I, th I think you make a nice point there as well about how, you know, um, technology is a component of that because th that's no surprise really, is it, in terms of this uh, Cartesian notion, you know, the, the notion of, of modern subjectivity, the notion of technology control, etc. you know, the, the kind of uh, the mapping and the optics and the geometry and the and, and cinema is part of this whole modern um, project, this attempt to objectify and control the world, um, uh, which um, eco uh, critics have, 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 have accused um, Cartesian um, uh, dualism as being um, such an important part of. Um, in terms of the alternatives, I, I think it's, it's you're right in saying, you know, is it possible? How, how, how does it work? I mean, I'm not 100% sure in terms of the answers to that. The, the, the examples that I look at, the, the kind of the avant-garde examples that I look at in the book, I'm interested in them um, in, a, in a particular sense, um, in terms of the notion of, of reflexivity, in terms of the notion that they um they signal and they announce their um their artifice as opposed to this kind of the invisibility that you mentioned there um within the mainstream um, hollywood tradition um a reflexive film announces that it is a construct it continuously asks the um, spectator to engage with it as a piece of artifice as opposed to as a as a window onto the world that's the main way in which I'm interested in uh, the potential for avant-garde um, film. 
in terms of does that sort of answer your question i mean i know you were talking about a very specific embeddedness in place um i'm not sure if it, if it answers that question on on that particular component i don't know if you've got any more thoughts on that yeah uh, um no I, it was just a thought maybe i wasn't so concrete either but uh just to quote uh a film teacher of mine at once said that we represent, we are preoccupied with representing the outside world because we want to hide ourselves. And this is really, I feel, the ecological participation in a landscape uh, should kind of uh, work against that concealing, concealment and try to reinscribe the subjectivity that is embedded in that experience and um, to, to be able to, to to achieve this in film is a big question, but obviously performative arts have a lot, another take on this. So I was just curious to hear if you have thought about the same things. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I absolutely think that, like you say, something um, something avant-garde potentially can, can make some kind of interventions, I think, within the Hollywood tradition, which doesn't do that. But so, so in terms of your notion of, of, of being invisible, not being, um uh, honestly present there within the cinema of course when we have a narrative film that's about a protagonist and we're following um you know this heroic protagonist who's flying airplanes through death-defying scenarios we're obviously not experiencing some kind of honest um relationship with the with the landscape absolutely um i mean yes i i think i think that the, the Again, the, the the way in which um, an experimental um, style of film can engage with that is to um, deliberately and reflexively reject those various um, um, alienating ways in which um, mainstream Hollywood cinema constructs this false ideological relationship between spectator and um, and text. So I was wondering then in that description of, you know, flying with your airplane through the buildings and things, what the role of spectacle is then, because it seems to me that many of these disaster films are about this, you know, the spectacular, the spectacle of, of seeing the things crash down um, and blow up and, you know, the planet be shred um, and how how you see that as a as a positive or a negative then in creating this you know ecological awareness well i think it's definitely a negative um it's um the the, the spectacle um and I'll, I'll fall back on psychoanalysis again i argue is 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 masochistic um and it's not just narrative in these films that, that we're particularly talking about it's also narratively masochistic because it refers to the way in which um um something like what something like um events that we might experience in the near future are being um uh, enacted before us um, now so it's narratively masochistic but it's also an exaggerated way in which the you know the formal components of uh, of um films being Cartesian and masochistic in the sense that um, the, spectacle, the spectacle of destruction um, keeps allowing us to, to have a heightened, uh, it, it, it's the, the, the most heightened example of the way in which the 
the stable position that we have as a Cartesian. So if we go back to the Renaissance painting again, when I'm, when I'm watching a Renaissance painting, it's nice and calm and I'm not threatened and I'm the, the center of perception looking at it. Now, what film does is film is like a series of these images, but it keeps cutting, it keeps throwing us out of position. Like now I'm looking at something else. Why am I looking at something else? But then quickly makes sense of why we're there again. Um, and in the psychoanalytic literature, this is called suture, uh, you know, like the stitching together of the of the of the components. Um, and I argue that this is a, a masochistic process that we keep getting. Every cut says to us, no, you're not the center of meaning, but then we back in place again, almost instantaneously. We back, we back, we back. So every cut that a film does throws us momentarily out of position puts us back into position, throws us out, puts us back in. And when we have these massive spectacles, this is kind of like the most extreme example of this. We're, we're being, I mean, during the spectacles, you have objects that fly towards the screen are, are the most extreme examples of these. And I give lots of examples in the books. It's, it, there are, the lava comes towards the screen, waves frequently crash against the screen, etc. Buildings collapse directly towards the screen indeed yeah and these are these kind of masochistic moments because we're about to be engulfed aren't we we're about to not be this safe observer separated from the res extensa we're about to be caught up um, but then it will cut away <laughs> and we'll be safe again we'll experience the, the 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 majesty and the transcendence of the destruction so i think of the spectacular sequences as being kind of the the, the key to this if you like so they're masochistic in the sense that um you know, people are being killed and, and characters are nearly dying, etc. But at, at, the, at the really fundamental level, it's about the formal threats that we have. We keep getting threatened. I'm about to be thrown out of position. I'm about to have something crashed into me. And we, we, we're brought back to life almost in the next uh, image. I was wondering about a related concept then, uh, which is to me part of the appeal of these films, which is the sublime. I mean, there's also um, with the massive scale of, of some of these well, apocalypses that happen and the way they're visualized. I mean, yes, they're spectacle, but there's also uh, something sublime about them. But the thing, this kind of sublime, it happens across a wide range of uh, you say environmental apocalyptic films like okay you have the big spectacular disaster films but you also have like uh blade runner 2049 you know where in a way you're after the apocalypse people are living through the aftermath and there's still like this incredibly sublime quality to these landscapes we see uh how does that fit in then with uh what you're describing well there is there is some um existing scholarship on 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 sublime in 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 these kind of films and in terms of um of spectacle um i i, I tend to not focus it on it as much as this particular aspect but i do think that the images are still sublime in um like a kantian sense if you like in terms of the notion that um kant talks doesn't he about the way in which the sublime experience is one of feeling engulfed by and overpowered by the scale. Um, and I think that the, the kind of spectacles that we're talking about um, certainly have the potential to do that. Um, a number of scholars, I'm just trying to remember back to it now, a number of scholars, I think Zizek is one of the scholars who talks about the way in which the sublime experience, although it is, particularly criticizing Kant, um, although it ostensibly seems to be um, about how nature is more powerful than man still has this experiencing 
man at the center of it is there's a kind of phenomenal let me say phenomenological component that's that's better. so I, and again i think the way in which the spectator uh, fills that role is potentially part of that um i mean you also mentioned about post-apocalyptic films and I, and I do discuss those i've got a chapter on those as well because i think those are potential potentially might be the um the clearest example of films that depart from some of the conventions that i've i've mentioned because they're they're not always really bleak so Waterworld, for example i don't know if you Waterworld is kind of a, a venture on the high seas um but something like the road for example you know is almost unbearably uh, bleak um but nevertheless, I, I make the point that even a film like The Road and these post-apocalyptic disaster films still kind of grant this spectator mastery over the images, um, still have these sublime um, spectacles, still have the notion, even in The Road, even though it's ambiguous at the end of The Road, that maybe there's catharsis, maybe there's resolution and renewal um, at the end. So. Um, I think in some ways that uh, post-apocalyptic films are perhaps less ideological than those films in which the disaster is depicted as unfolding, but still have these kind of Cartesian components to them. So we have a question from, from Inna in the chat. Uh, so she was asking about the, you know, the relationship between the fictional and the factual uh, components in narrating ecological disasters. So, uh, which is, yes, some of these disaster films that we see are fictional. They're, they're, you know, making up things about a potential future. Whereas others are using the same kind of mechanisms depict things that have happened. So we know that this is a fact, but we have never experienced it in this way before. Uh, so, so what do you think about that relationship then? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I mean, the, I'm, I just mentioned the road, for example, and that has some images within it which are, uh, you know, real documentary images. There's like a post-Katrina image, isn't there, of a boat washed up um, uh, in a city that was was actually taken after Hurricane Katrina. So there are these um, in the fiction because it's fictional examples that I'm principally interested in. But even in those fictional examples, there are there's an intrusion of. Um, the real, and I don't necessarily mean that in a, a Lacanian sense, although uh, there is also a Lacanian component to that in terms of the, you know, the traumatic component. Um, and I think that's because just, just to, I'll, I'll return to, more, to, to, to non-fictional examples in a moment, but in the fictional examples that I'm interested in, um, there will inevitably be um, uh, recourse to to real documentary footage because of this notion that I mentioned before about the you know the real world anxiety that that these films are repressing and uh, cathartically um, resolving. So um, so lots of these films have even if it's just moments of image. It's very frequently one of the recurring images of this is um, like dolphins or whales. Um, beating themselves or something along those lines. There are a number of films that in include that, I mean, it's, and it's often documentary. I mean, you're not going to um, film that. I suppose you could do it on CGI, couldn't you? Um, but it's often, you know, documentary footage or, or in the opening sequences, the uh, you know key environmental image. There's a polar bear on a small floating piece of ice. Um, so those those little moments of uh, of real documentary footage, I think, are the, and they're often as well there early in a film as well they're often there in an opening montage to establish real world context into which the later film um, subsequently emerges in terms of 
spectacles of actual disasters, real world disasters, that's about as far as I think I've gone in terms of looking. I can't really think of any. Re I don't know if the person who, who's, who's made the note in the chat has followed this up or wants to ask a question, but it's got a particular example um, in mind of um, of real world disaster unfolding. But um, I think that the way in which the disasters in the in the films that I'm talking, the spectacles are handled, is fundamentally something that that couldn't be. I mean, and. It, it's a slightly different point, but um, with my students, um, we, we do, um, there's a module about the effect of 9-11 on cinema and we compare the, uh, you know, television news footage with a scene which was released a couple of years just before from Armageddon. I don't know if you know the where New York gets struck by meteorites, etc. And of course, the two are completely different, aren't they, in terms of their, uh, the, you know, the visual grammar and language that um, depicts those two events. So I think that the um, the spectacles in these films that I'm interested in are fundamentally different from the way in which a real world disaster would be um, would be captured, would be filmed. Well, so I was wondering then about the time aspect, the tempo. Um, so is there something about the uh, quickness of a disaster or the slowness of a disaster um, of the apocalypse that might change the potential way that you could have a film, you know, presentation of that mm. um, or a reading on the part of the audience. I think it potentially could, couldn't it? Because I mean, th these films are paradoxically, not all of course, but they tend to be paradoxically, but paradoxically both very long and very fast. <laughs> Loads of um, snap, snap, very fast stuff is happening. Um, and I think you're perhaps referring to the notion of kind of slow violence perhaps here as well, which, which again, yes, would be potentially a, a more um, uh, honest, less bombastic, less spectacular way to capture, you know, the reality of um, anthropogenic climate change, for example, or various other um, environmental disasters. Um, and, you know, the ecological avant-garde is interested in this kind of very sl slow cinema is another term that is often used um to to to, to, to depict this um slow violence that is an everyday as opposed to a spectacular um event uh, the films that i'm writing or that principally writing about of course don't do that that you're talking about here they're, they're, they're not about the everyday they're about the the end of days the you know the, the this um completely not life-changing life-ending um you know um, uh, apocalyptic in in almost in the biblical sense um events as opposed to these kind of everyday slow um and yes i think that the the kind of um, film that you're talking about there would not be as ideological as as a bombastic disaster film absolutely well, as they say, the, the end um, will come with a whimper, not a bang. Um, so this is, I mean, I think that maybe is one of the problems with our environmental condition at the moment is that it, it's not actually going to be the apocalypse of the films, but is rather this slow, a slow dying and not a fast death. Um, that That is part of the problem that film is having difficulty with, with you know, portraying. Yeah. Because how do you resolve that? How, how do you have a cathartic resolution to that? Um, exactly. How do you have a, a hero who 
escapes that, you know, it's, um, yeah. it doesn't really do. I mean, also the thing, the, the kind of films that you're writing about, the genre in a way, it's a very particular type of film, you know, the Hollywood blockbuster uh, that have particular characteristics. I mean, a tons of money are invested in them. They depend on large numbers of people watching them. So they need to be very like efficient in the way they entertain people. Uh, well, and also, you know, the, the spectacular. And then you you kind of draw up the scale down to this other type of film in the way that the, the artistic uh, avant-garde films that are non-narrative and so on. So, uh, I mean, it's not as much as a question as such, but I mean, I'm wondering, you know, about the, is there something about the characteristics of these films, the Hollywood blockbusters that, I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with environment at all in a way the way they they portray the world the way they uh they use also mechanics of storytelling uh of visual representation uh and relationship to the viewer uh that's completely independent of of this environmental aspect too i'm just wondering about that so and I guess in, in extension of that, could you envision a Hollywood blockbuster of this type that does have at least tendencies of, of the non-Cartesian understanding of environment? I, I don't think, not, not without some kind of radical, um, you know, cultural transformation, um, which is why I kind of ended up as well in my conclusion, talking about the particular historical moment, um, you know, that we're either at or maybe it's gone i don't know um yeah i don't think so. i mean you're absolutely right to say that these films are a genre that they that they um they're trying to evoke a particular um response from the spectator they, they of course have more to do with like an alien invasion uh, movie don't they than they have to do with a, 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 a slow um ecological uh, eco film um for me they're they're, they're principally of of um of interest uh, to an eco critic both because of the anxiety that they are negotiating you know that that, that, that they're touching on even if they're doing it obliquely and you know without um uh, offering meaningful um solutions and as i say more even more broadly within this notion that you know all um, mainstream filmmaking, uh, the Hollywood, the realist tradition. Uh, as soon as you uh, use a shot reverse shot structure, straight away, either spectator and granted transcendence over space. I've just teleported over here, <laughs> I've teleported over there, um, and and I, and I think that that's a fundamentally Cartesian uh, notion that grants me this this perceptual uh, mastery. So. Um, could we make a tweak to the environmental disaster film so that we have um, something um, less ecophobic? I, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe to a small extent. I mean, some, there's been a lot of writing about films like uh, something like Avatar, for example, as potentially having some kind of use value. Um, and I think maybe in certain ways it does. I think it un largely undercuts. I mean, this is part, it's almost like a cliche of the psychoanalytic film. Um, approach is to say that the film it goes halfway towards something potentially positive and then it undercuts and resolves 
Um, so I suppose films could do less undercutting and resolving, certainly. But whether they would have that, um, you know, the, the thing that draws the spectator to the, I mean, they have such a kind of a rigid um, structure of points that need to be met. You almost wonder what would happen if one of those drops out. So the question that Lily has in the chat, I think, builds nicely on that then, because she was wondering about the ability of, I mean, either type of films, we're talking the Hollywood blockbuster or the you know, ecofilm, uh, what, what ability they have to inspire change or activism or awareness uh, of things, you know, is, is this something that fiction of this type is useful for, do you think? I absolutely think it, um, I mean, not not in terms of the, the, the mainstream Hollywood films, um, I don't think so, but because of the negative effects that I talked about. There has also been some interesting work done, and I discussed this in the book, um, uh, empirical surveys of audiences' responses to films. I don't know if people are familiar with this, in terms of the film um, The Day After Tomorrow, the Roland Emmerich Climate Change is Asked film. I think there were two, at least two big um, surveys conducted by um, scientists of audience responses um, and by and large audiences talked about how they they their thinking had changed slightly towards ecological issues but when they were asked about you know what kind of changes of behavior they might have etc the the, um, the people doing the interviews concluded that, that there wasn't any real meaningful changes of attitude so even if a film like this potentially could make you think well yes we need to do something damn it they don't really provide the um, the thing. Um, it's also the case as well, and I haven't had a chance to talk uh, much about this, but it's also the case in the film that I, I'm skeptical, maybe skeptical is not quite the right word, but it'll do about about the the kind of the awareness model. I mean, my my argument is that Cartesian subjectivity is unconscious. It's designated to us by the symbolic order. It's part of who we are. It's part of when I say I my very sense of me as a person is is Cartesian, is, is in some way alienated. Um, yes, absolutely. I, of course, we can be more or less aware of the impact that we each have on the environment. But my argument is that we radically need to change our subjectivity, not just recycle more or you know build more um, wind farms or whatever it might be. Um, and, I, and I think that gets to the second part of the, of the question about the avant-garde component and in terms of activism. I think um, even more importantly than having a, um, an impact on activism, what the avant-garde can do, and this is a kind of a conception, you know, the, the traditional conception of the avant-garde, if you like, is the notion of developing new ways of thinking, new ways of seeing. And perhaps avant-garde ecofilms can try to try to create something that's non-Cartesian uh, um, and that that can be a kind of a vanguard thing and, and, and uh, because I, I do I, I, I really believe that um, tinkering around the edges isn't going to solve this we need radical radical changes to our society which are going to require radical changes to our subjectivity um, and the avant-garde can contribute towards that um, and as I say, not necessarily only in terms of activism, in terms of me going out and saying, let's change it all now, but of that kind of self change. Thank you. I think that's a, a good closing comment too. Uh, hopeful. Uh, Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
So, uh, yeah, so thank you then to all of you for coming and thanks to Robert Gill uh, for discussing his book Ecological Film Theory and Psychoanalysis uh, that came out with R Routledge this year.